Welcome back. Welcome back. This is the final episode this year of Africa as a Country Talk, or in short, AIAC Talk. The music you heard is, is actually from a track produced by Chief Boimer, also known as International Black, also known as Boimer Tucker, also known as the managing editor of Africa as a Country. Uh, this is uh, episode 21, and this is our last episode for 2020 before we go for a break until the new year. I'm Sean Jacobs, um, streaming from Brooklyn and New York City, and with me is... Will Shorky, all the way in Johannesburg. Uh, and yeah, we're the co-presenters of the show. Africa is a country's weekly discussion interview show. If you don't know that by now, then when will you ever know? But we're, we're happy to have you with us. We're, we're happy that everyone's traveled on this journey with us. It's, I only realize now that this is episode 21, which means the show is finally legal in all jurisdictions. We should be getting a key. We should be getting a key. Yeah, we should be getting, should getting a key, should be getting a, a pint of beer to celebrate as well. I would like um, to hear from people in the comments if anybody's even watching. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you see, it's Christmas. You know, people are like somewhere on, defying the COVID regulations. They're somewhere on a beach somewhere. But um, the point I was going to make is like, for those people who don't understand why I said like you need the key, and I'd like to hear in the comments if where you are from, what do they give you when you turn 21? Because I know in South Africa, like in this kind of working class environment, I grew up in, in Cape Town. If you turn 21, I mean, that didn't happen to me. Like sort of, there was no time for that. But um, you, your parents give you like a key, this like symbolic key, and then you stand with a photo right in front of like some room divider or something. <laughs> your mom or your dad, they hand it to you. And it's like, it's like when you get an award, like, you know, when you meet a cup or something. And at that event, this is like, this is when they tell you this symbolic key allows you to go in and out of the house, I suppose. You can, I, I, I think in some ways you can sort of have a drink in front of your parents. Um, if you bring somebody over, they can sort of like sit in the lounge <laughs> with like, <laughs> a gap between you, but it's accepted now that you're a grown-up. I think like that's the, so I, so I suppose the show has now, has now finally grown up. We have a great archive. If you've missed our last episode, we talked about the crisis of the African state with Eleni Sentin Zeleke. I hope she's watching. Great guest, assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies. I finally got that right. Uh, Mesa, I was like, something Mesa at Columbia University. And who wrote a book called uh, Ethiopian Theory, Revolution, and Knowledge Production? That show actually has is the is, is our most popular show thus far on YouTube. It did really well. Uh, the comments are it's not you know it's like hundreds of comments, but the comments are actually happening on that show. People are talking to each other, so we're very excited about making that show. You can watch clips from that show on our YouTube channel, and the whole thing, the whole episode, um, on our Patreon. Patreon forward says Africa as a country, along with all the other episodes uh, from our um, archive. Well, end of the year, end of the year, final episode. Uh, and yeah, it's our end of year program. And today we're doing it a little bit differently. We're not going to discuss any particular topic. We're just going to have a cast of characters, familiar faces you've seen throughout the year, who've all appeared on the show. And we're just going to bring them on and have a freewheeling conversation, Kitty Zamba. So we're not trying to stress too much. We're just chillaxing. We've turned 21, so we want to have a little bit of a party. And um, want to stay yeah. out late. Want to stay out late. 
December. Yeah. Okay, what is December? You also need to tell people like why are you using this like show title? Yeah. Show title today is December. So, so December, it's it's a South African colloquial term, and in South Africa and really the global South, uh, the real sort of period when people unwind, they start to enjoy their downtime, and they take a break and pause from life is December because you know, as you should know, our summer months are in the last three months of the year between. October and December. So this is the real holiday season for us in the global north. It's your big summer break between June and August. Here it's it's December, and obviously it overlaps with the holidays, Christmas and New Year's being the big one. So it's a it's a big intense period of festivities of usually going home to see your families. South Africa still has a big migrant labor system, so a lot of the people who are concentrated in urban areas during the majority of the year, go back to their families in the rural areas. So it's really just this big party season. And um, December just became this sort of, this way of, 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 of addressing this month when people are festive, it's pronounced with that Z, Z sound, um, because it's, it's unlike every other month, you know? It's, and with A at the end, with A at the end. Not A at the end. Exactly. We're at the end. We're ready to play, ready to have some fun, ready to enjoy December. So right now there's just music uh, playing everywhere. Everyone is extremely festive. That's getting everyone into a lot of trouble because we're still in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, I think people are trying to do what they can to, to keep up the December spirit within the constraints of the pandemic. I mean, people I think were understandably, I would say, uh, a little bit too excited and eager and might have been a bit reckless. But I think the the reality check is kicking in um, here in South Africa, especially with the second wave now in full swing. So somebody just, reminded me, somebody just reminded me in the chat, Lily, who's going to come on a little, little later, Lily saying just reminded me that I, I told people about a conga line. I saw like a tweet somewhere at, at like a, a, a Tisanyama, which is like a pop and pop. Is that pop and flace? Yeah, like, Bob, Brian, yeah, Brian, like you get like a big thing with your Brian, yeah. which I want to say, which I want to segue into music quickly before we ask each other one quick question. But uh, she just reminded me that I, oh, somebody stands, <laughs> people are just, okay, this show is going to be, the, our, our, our guests are already talking in our, in our internal comments. I don't want to give that away. But anyway, there was this like conga line, no mask on, and the joke on Twitter was like, there were these two people, they were like, they had masks on, but it was, it was on their chin and in their hand, and feels like, what's the use of that? But it was like more than 100 people in the conga line dancing to music, um, and, and, I, and I bet, you know, these scenes, you can see them elsewhere on the continent. People are just, I, you know, people are tired. We are not, we understand that people are being tired of a year of hiding, people are ang people have anxiety, they just want to relax, they just want to go out and yeah. do something different. So, but also, I, I mean, oh, sorry, make a quick comment. No, go ahead, me. go ahead. What I think is, is and, and you know, we were talking about this with Bhakti just before we got on, and I've been chatting about it with some other friends as well, where it's like, there's a lot of, on social media, uh, calls for people to exercise caution and responsibility, and that's fine, and that's good. But I also think we shouldn't lose sight of how, I think uh, the government has been on the sustained initiative to sort of outsource the burden and responsibility of the pandemic to individuals. And All governments have done that. Yeah, exactly. And sort of 
totally concealing the fact that they're the ones who initially, and did a poor job of it, had the responsibility of cushioning the blow for right. ordinary people and providing them the adequate support so that they could exercise this responsibility and exercise this caution. And now, once again, the, the burden and duty towards compliance is up to the individual. And if they're not doing it, then they get shamed. So, I mean, the government should, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that uh, really, if we want people to comply, then we have to create the conditions for compliance. And once again, it all comes down to these questions of structural inequalities and state failure. Yeah, no, it's uh, we for people to think that this this was the honest, how do you say it, honest, horrible, 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 or whatever, the, the, this was the worst year in the world, yeah. Um, uh, this was, you know, 2021, like, you know, the, the I mean, not, not all of us are going to get that vaccine very soon, so we still in for like a fight um, and and being responsible, and but at the same time trying to live, you know, trying to stay alive. So before we get on to uh, inviting in our first guest, we wanted to ask each other just two quick questions. The first is, and I'll drop mine. I don't think the so the song of the year apparently was Jerusalem to such an extent that Will went and wrote about it um, and, and saw in it the great you know this kind of like idea of like uh, redemption. This song was more, which I think he's right. People try to, people in the midst of this terrible thing. But I, I'm getting tired of hearing this, This like, I think yesterday we were just like chatting about today and I played it and Woe's like, shut that off or something. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna now introduce what I think is, I think gonna be like the song of this. Well, I, I think the song of December in most places is going to be a Nigerian, it's obviously gonna be a Nigerian pop song. Somewhere you are dancing to like, Either David Davido or um, what's his name, the, the other the guy who was actually on a remix of Jerusalem. Um, Burner Boy. Burner Boy. I think it's going to be one of those two, or um, uh, Tiwa Savage. Some some like you know, you're dancing to a Nigerian Nigerian pop. They win hands down if you're trying to play some African music right now. Um, but for me, I think the song that I kind of like. Um, I hope Internet finds the clip and just play like a little bit of it. It's called Imali. Eningi. So Jerusalem right now has globally, because Jerusalem is like a hit, it's like for everywhere. It has 274 million uh, people have like looked at that video on YouTube. And Mali Eningi right now is like a 2.8 million. So this is not going to be a global, I get it, I get it. But if you like from where I'm from, I think this is the song. And the reason I like it, it's also like a bit of nostalgia. These dudes are like, they 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 they're in this video and they're wearing it sounds like staring down my pants. They're wearing like what I what we used to call a Nevada slacks. It had like the pleats in the little turn up. They're wearing like you know moccasins, whatever, like those kind of Italian type shoes with the leather. They got the cavellas. They got the cavellas. They got the cars with the crescita. It's like if you see the video, it's the, the the nostalgia bit of it. I know it's totally, you know, nostalgia, but within like like a. Because my nostalgia is like, you know, it's happening under a repressive racist system, but people were making like a world inside it. I mean, I used to like be fond of like the fair, they had the fair, which is kind of like the carnival. You dress up, you, you know, you get your button down shirt and you got your like Nevada slacks and your, your slip-ons. So this video, this video of Imali Eningi, I think here we got it. Yeah, you can see like a little, uh, you can see the, 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 the wheels on that car. 
And then the guy, the guy who's in the car, yeah, in the car, his name is Big Zulu. He's like the main dude. And you can see from, I mean, my shirt was never that way down. I never had my shirt. My shirt were buttoned down. They were like short sleeves. But see, you see that pants with the little turn up? Oh, look at that. See that, that, and the walk right there? Oh yeah, there you go. So for me, I don't know, I'll shut up right there before I expose myself more. <laughs> look at that feet right there. That for me is the song of the summer. That's December, right? That look, that whole feet, that whole feel, that's December. That's it. Oh, somebody just said the Crescida, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the Crescida, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great song. And you're right, I think it is the song of December, but a big Zulu, just a quick word on him. He's a very interesting artist. He's from Bergville, which is this uh, small village in, in KwaZulu-Natal. And it's known as this, this village where uh, the majority of particularly men in that village are part of the migrant labor force. They go to, to the city to find work. And, and Big Zulu sort of praised as this artist who, despite being a hip hop artist, still sort of uh, embodies that uh, sort of rural um, kind of cultural aesthetic of speaking to these symbols of, of, of village life and the, the sort of life of, of working class young men who are going to, going to the city to find work. So the, the locale for that video is, is a hostel, right? Um, and, and people will instantly recognize that here in South Africa as a hostel. So it's, a, it's a, I mean, a lot of people, I think, particularly love the song. And not only love the song, but I think this, this year in music in South Africa, where we're seeing a lot of these tracks, including Jerusalem, which is not about sort of copying and adopting the, the musical styles of the United States, but really embracing um, South African aesthetics and South African traditions of music. Um, and, and I think that's what's getting a lot of people excited about the song as well, um, is that it feels extremely South African in its, in its way of, of doing things and its lyricism and its music video. So yeah, I mean, there's also like, so Duruzane Zuma, who, you know, that's another, another thing to get into. Uh, the, the son uh, of former South African president Jacob Zuma, who himself has been embroiled in a lot of corruption scandals, has now had this sort of redemption arc as this sort of suave maverick businessman that's sort of taking people away on social media. He started this, you know, challenge where he just records himself walking and he plays <laughs> and people are just sort of taking to that challenge. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's called the Dudezane, isn't it called like the Dudezane challenge? challenge? Yeah, Dudezane met Big Zulu the other day and they're, they're getting cozy. So it's, it seems like it's the fate of every big South African track nowadays that it's just going to be made into a challenge. And like the most inane thing can be picked for what that challenge should involved such as you know walking so you have like some dude somewhere in milan doing the like big zulu like walk with the like you know and like the thing with the leg and do the move yeah exactly this is what's coming anyway if we go on like this we're never gonna invite our first guest in so why don't we just call in our first guest um paul clark uh paul is a, a graduate student phd is about to, did you get the phd already paul no not quite yet so uh, yeah, I was slated to go on fieldwork uh, July 2020. So I've been uh, marooned in the U.S. here for a while. So Paul's at, Paul's at Harvard University in anthropology. But Paul's distinction is that he was the very first like guest outside of just one and I doing that, that banter that we're doing. 
that we invited on to discuss something really serious. And Paul came on to talk about abolitionism, uh, the fate of abolitionism, policing, um, because he's done work in South Africa. And unfortunately, the, that particular day, we really struggled with the internet. Um, and, oh, I think people saying they cannot, they can hear no sound, but, but you will, oh, oh, that was something else. Okay. Um, I don't know why I got distracted. The point is like Paul came and we were, we felt embarrassed, felt bad for Paul. <laughs> There's a clip of it. <laughs> this is not something to be proud of. Well, everything was just, this is like Will's little cousin right here or something. <laughs> Yeah, look at Paul. It's well, like, we were holding the robots, just sort of. Yeah, it was that. It was that cool. It was that cool. It was um, cool. Anyway, we want to ask Paul. Basically, what we're going to do is like each person is going to come in. We have a couple of guests like Paul is going to join us today, and they're going to join us for like probably about five minutes. And um, oh my God, look at our titles. So we're going to ask our guests just a random question. Will, why didn't you fire off the question for 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 Paul? Yeah, I mean, Paul. I mean, it's it's great to have you back and. When we had you on, it was a very interesting time for the world because it was uh, a week or two after the murder of George Floyd, which sparked Black Lives Matter protests around the globe. And we were all making sense of that moment. And very quickly, the language of police abolitionism started to take hold. And at that time, everyone saw the prospects of a truly exciting movement that would would take roots all over and you know having you on now it's interesting because i think it provides an opportunity for us to sort of take stock of where that's headed and what's become of it and it's also you know really kind of sad time um you know after the united states executed another person it's, it's, it's unbelievable that the death penalty is still something that's there so i mean yeah, I just want to hear from you. I mean, what do you think of abolitionism at this moment? I mean, what what do you think is next for Black Lives Matter in, in the coming year? Uh, you know, the vaccine, especially in the States, is going to start getting rolled out. And once again, we might have the opportunity to return to the streets unapologetically and start to grapple with the, the injustices and inequalities that people have endured in the past year. Yeah, it's a good question. Something that's been on my mind as well. I think there's something particularly cold about this winter in North America right now. And it's always helpful to remember that these things always seem to happen. They seem to kind of bubble up during the summer. So it can feel kind of dark that maybe abolition or the movement has kind of stalled or it's gone underground. But I think it's always the case that these things tend to pop off in June, uh, July, August. Um, I think overall for the movement, I mean, I, I don't think that the, the overall analysis has really changed. I think there was a lot of hope with the eruption that there would be, um, that you, it would reach a lot of people, right? And it has uh, reached a lot more people. But I think the challenges are really structural. They exist at the state level, at the level of political parties. This is true in the US and in South Africa. And that's gonna take slow work of building a coalition um, it's going to take work of going into communities and talking to people in plain language about what abolition actually means for their lives. What does it mean about crime? Um, how does it impact, you know, their relatives, the way they walk down the street, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I don't know if abolitionists um, 
I, I mean, I, I do know lots of abolitionists have done work with incarcerated people, with populations that are directly affected. I'm not sure that we've sharpened our, our arguments for those people who are, you know, maybe not directly impacted, but would benefit from the vision of abolition. And I think really that is the next step is kind of sharpening the arguments against, you know, de don't defund the police, which has been thrown out um, by moderate Democrats who are deeply cynical, you know. Um, yeah, I've been thinking through a few things um, personally, but I'll keep that um, in my back pocket for now. Okay, um, so before we kick you out then, why don't we ask you some one, one other question. If, if um, somebody came to you now and said to you like, who's the African of the year? Who would it be? Like who for you are like the, who's the most, or Africans, even as a group, an individual or as a group that stood out, particularly in like the kind of politics that you're interested in? You're asking a white American to name the African of the year. So you end up with uh, Bill Gates as an honorary there was, almost, there was almost a meme there where I was like spitting out all the water. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think I'll just name like, so a, a team of people that I really appreciate their work. Um, New Frame has been around for a while, but I think this is like the year of New Frame for me. Like their work is absolutely stellar. Um, and I don't know a publication that does the sort of work from the perspective that they do anywhere else in the world. It doesn't exist in the US. There's this time maybe three or four years ago where there were really, I really felt a dearth in, in South African reporting. Um, and New Frame has kind of like burst onto the scene. It's been, it's been awesome. It's what I read every day besides Africa as a country. So <laughs> I was waiting for that correction right there. We got the correction. So that's a nice shout out there. I hope our friends at New Frame are watching. Um, yeah. Shout out to Christopher McMichael, who writes for New Frame. He's been on the show. Uh, he's doing some excellent, yeah. excellent writing on the on the rise of, of right-wing politics in South Africa. And, and in Africa in general. And in Africa yeah. in general, yeah. yeah. Great guy from Witzwatersrand University. Paul, we're not gonna like keep you longer, but thank you for coming on. And like, that was great. Yeah, like we said, it's gonna be uh, quick and dirty. I think we have, we have, so we, well, what was your, well, before our next guest uh, as Medina, Tia, our next guest is about to come on. What was your top, your, who's your African of the year? My African of the year, I mean, I actually haven't, you know, it's, it's haven't thought about that. I guess it's, it's hard to come to a conclusion about that when you're in the middle of things uh and and intensely so but i mean i i, I think it's a, an easy answer to give is to say uh the end sars movement uh that's that my vote they take my vote i think if you if it's not about COVID, if if, if we're not voting for doctors nurses public health officials yeah. um who either despite their governments um along with community groups you know have kind of kept people alive and, and worked hard to keep people safe. Um, I would say, I would say, I told, I agree that it's it's that group. And then I would give it to NSARS and I give it to NSARS because unlike other popular movements more recently, um, NSARS, they, if, if, and I'm getting into popular movements, I want to get to Medina because in Medina's case, there was actually political change, but what we want to ask her about, but in the NSARS moment, they actually got the, the, the this uh, special anti-robbery um, unit. They got the, the government to dissolve the unit. It's the government then replaced with another weirdly named unit. I forgot what they were called, the Nigerian government. But yeah, I, I would I would give it for like just the the breadth of that activism, 
the linkage to people outside, to the Nigerian diaspora, etc. So brilliant. But in any case, uh, Madina Tiam is here. She is a contributor at this point, Africa's a country. And she just is editing a series for us called Histories of Refuge. I got that right. Which looks at, which looks at, this is like, this is bad in jokes about titles of these things, uh, which looks at um, kind of uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, the debate about who's a refugee and then tracing that sort of historically and coming up with sort of very unusual groups of people are included in that. Um, Portuguese who go back to um, uh, Africa, um, Congo, uh, that Polish people ended up after the Second World War in certain parts of Africa. So really interesting work that I could, that we could recommend. Um, and her, you know, the, the, the connected to what we just said about NSARS, you were on, we had you on to talk about the political crisis in, in Mali. Um, and in hindsight, like, how would you, do you think that that was a, do, they, do, do the people who made the protest happen, did they get what they wanted? Um. <laughs> No, they didn't. <laughs> I don't think they did. Um, it's a weird time right now in, in Mali and in Bamako. Basically, I think when we met, was it like back in like late August, early yeah, September yeah. or something like that? So the coup had just, so protests had been going on all summer. Um, and then at the end of the summer, a group from the military did this coup, um, you know, outed the president. It was by and large a nonviolent like coup, uh, no bloodshed, nothing. Um, so now we're, it's, it's very strange. So people were very excited when the, the military came on, at least for a few days, uh, the time that it took us to figure out what they actually wanted. Uh, and it's something that we still haven't really figured out, but basically since then, the, the guys who did the coup, the military, has more or less been in power. Um, they, they, these guys got a little bit, like they, you know, they organized um, some kind of semi-democratic process um, they're saying they're like leading a transition up until the next elections. Uh, they have like a transition council in place that's where the military is very heavily represented. So basically right now, I mean, all in all, I think that the things that got people to go in the streets to begin with um, are things that haven't really been solved and we're kind of this like weird, like in-between situation where you have like the military running the country uh, along with the civilian government, but it's unclear what the linkages are between them. Uh, so yeah, all in all, it's just a strange time right now in Mali. This seems, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what Paul's just said now and reflecting on this sort of strange lull period between the explosion of Black Lives Matter we had in the middle of the year and now it's the same thing with MSARS, reflecting on Mali and it just seems like generally across the globe protest will follow this pattern of having this huge explosion demanding change and then there's going to be this strange period when it's a struggle to figure out how exactly to implement that change and how to get properly organized yeah. so as to oversee it and carry it successfully so i mean what what do you think should happen next if people are, are serious about carrying through these reforms and, and ensuring that the transformation that happens is a long-lasting and sustained one, and that there's constant pressure put, not just to tweak at the edges of, of the system, but to, to really meaningfully transform it as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Well, I have no idea. Um, and, you know, I wasn't even in Mali. Like, I haven't been mobilizing with people. I, always, I mean, I've been here in Los Angeles all summer, but I feel like what's difficult over there, maybe here too, is that 
it's hard to keep that kind of pressure sustained and that kind of mobilization where people are dealing with just day to day, like, you know, like COVID. Uh, right now, actually, this week in, in, in Mali, we have, there's like a week long uh, strike going on that was called by like the main like workers union because uh, they have a ton of demands that don't relate specifically with that political situation, but just people have their stuff, like their difficult stuff to deal with um, that kind of like, it's hard to remain focused on, on, it's difficult to remain focused on this political goal when at the same time, like the, you know, the economy, like they're not, people are not making enough. There's all kinds of other problems adding, piling onto that. Uh, COVID right now, we're in the middle of the, I don't know if it's the second wave in Mali or if we really like had a first wave. Like for the most part, you know, it was fine for most of the year, but like the past few weeks, it's just been exploding. Uh, so I don't know. I just feel like people are bombarded with all these, you know, like it's it's like you're bombarded uh, from all sides. It's kind of hard to keep that kind of like sustained focus. Uh, so it's difficult. I'm not sure where it's going to go. I think maybe we're going to see this week with the the workers movement, like how the how the transition government, which has been portraying itself as responding to the needs of the people, now they're facing they're facing their first real like big contestation. So we're gonna see how they react to that. Um, and given the look of it right now, I'm just seeing this morning the the guy who was named like president of the transition. Nobody really knew him before all of this happened. Um, he's already having this language of like you know how dare you like how dare you go on strike when the whole country should be coming together right now. We're all together. Uh, so I don't know. Let's let's see. I guess like let's wait and see. And pressuring. Let's see where. But before it before we let you go, we have one quick question for you. What is okay. the most interesting thing that you read this year? Ooh, that's difficult. I haven't been reading as much as I should have for somebody who's writing a dissertation. Um, I would say um, I actually just I haven't read it yet, but I just got in the mail uh, this book, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, it's a 1969. I think it's a 1969 publication that came out of a of a of a conference that was organized in '68. Uh, it's called the Militant Black Writer in Africa and the United States. Uh, so I haven't dug in yet, but I'm pretty. It's basically like uh, two lectures that were put together on black writing in the U.S. and in Africa. Um, by somebody, I think Mercer Cook was like the U.S. ambassador to like Sierra Leone and Senegal, like in the in the in the sixties. Uh, so I haven't read it yet. You know, this year I've ordered a lot of books and I haven't read any of them. Like I think a lot of people are doing that, but I'm pretty excited about that one. Um, I'll be checking it out. And this is just it's not for work, it's not for anything. It's just like for myself. So maybe I'll drop the the title in the chat and we can share it. Excellent. Thanks for thanks for coming on. And somebody was, yeah, exactly. Somebody just said that we should drop all the titles of the books and then put them on the screen so people can can read it. But thanks, Marina. And hopefully in the new year we'll work together a lot more. So hopefully. For sure. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. Where do you want to introduce our next guest? Yeah, so our next guest is is Alex Hotz. Uh, Alex is currently a master's student at the University of Cape Town. Uh, she was also actively involved in the Rosemont Fall and Bismuth Fall protest movements here in South Africa. And, you know, Medina was just commenting, Alex, that he hasn't been reading a lot lately. I haven't, I haven't been reading a lot lately. And, and one thing I was surprised to learn in the last week, Alex, is that Stephen Bantu Biko, uh, who you came on the show to talk about, was active in the 1950s. So I want to I want to ask you of your opinion of, of, of the 50s. Oh, this is a Twitter thing, right? This is a Twitter thing. 
I think I saw Petani and others going, calling it like Biko in the 50s. Like, what is this about? So I yeah, don't I mean, know what it's about because I love Twitter. I have oh no idea. I, I feel like I miss everything on social media these days. I think I think we we should follow your your example and, and get on social media. Um, but to give context, everyone, so uh, it's an interesting time to reflect on the legacy of Fees Must Fall, which is what you were on the show to do uh, a few months ago, but. In the last week, Adam Habib, who is the vice chancellor of Wits University, the institution that I attend, has been preparing to leave. He's going to go sort of head up, I think, SOAS, which is a school of Oriental and African Studies in London. And um, a, a big sort of tribute documentary was put together where different students came on to reflect on the legacy of Habib as vice chancellor of Wits University. And most of the people on this video had nothing but praise, really, which is which is very strange, considering that uh, a lot of them were active and very critical of Habib during the Fees Must Fall movement. Um, and one of those individuals is the current student representative council president of uh, uh, of Ad Advits, and he made the comment where he was talking about how no great leader was popular during their era of greatness. And he was saying, you know, Mandela wasn't popular in the 60s. Sobukwe wasn't popular in the 50s. Miko wasn't popular in the 50s. And so social media, as it does, just latched onto this and completely sort of took him to town. And, and I think it was kind of, I mean, it was in a way cosmic justice because I think a lot of people were just sort of perplexed by the Volta face of, someone who went from being extremely critical of the role that vice chancellors played during these must fall in terms of being suppressing of students on campus, militarizing those campuses in order to do so, and being intransigent on the question of free education, and now suddenly praising this, this, this vice chancellor when you're your SRC president. Um, which is interesting because, I mean, I mean, Alex, what do you think in terms of of the place where fees must fall is at now because a lot of people a few months ago as well were reflecting on the five-year anniversary of rose must fall which started in 2015 and something i've been thinking about is that you know um we can be very critical of that period but uh it seems like it's unfinished business you know fees haven't haven't fallen uh south african universities not only south african universities but universities across the globe are preparing to enter into a period of extreme austerity and the university feels like the site of political or it's going to once again become the site of, of intense conflict and contestation. That was a long question, Will, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, There's no way she's answering that in two minutes, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> I just wanted to give the context to the Twitter beef and then sort of bring it back to the question of, of, of universities and, and free education. I think it's going to be, um, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult period now to organize in, considering that we're not, you know, on campus in any meaningful way. Um, it's very interesting that you asked this question because academics, some um, progressive academics have written a statement that was published in the Daily Maverick um, and elsewhere 
on you know criticizing the government um, and the education department for saying that 2020 was a good year um, for universities or for education um, because I think the situation is really really going to be quite difficult next year I don't think many people have been able to study or afford to pay fees or any of those type of things um, this year and so it's also just um, the state of um, the student movement and the fact that it's kind of been quite fractured and back into you know um, political party and partisan organizing which is going to limit I guess unity around some of the demands but also create divisions between students and academics and workers particularly around fee increments and salaries and those type of things so it's i guess rebuilding and reorganizing um is maybe the five-year legacy of of the student movement i don't know uh we'll uh, yeah i think it's, it's going to be very challenging um yeah, it may have something to do with like student politics is generational so you could have like this one, you know, whatever, whatever that you had those great 20s, 2015, 2017, and then they leave, they go somewhere else, you know, they go into the, into the world or they go to grad school. Um, and then you, you may have to wait until there's like another kind of, there's another generation like that. I mean, this, I think this, this seems to be the, the thing with student movements. Yeah, I think it also reveals um, the politics or, or how people come into, into politics and how they leave. So if you look at some people who were with, with us in the student movement five years ago are working at very big companies that, you know, are, are the cog in the capitalist um, machine and are in government and are in other places. And it's like... Fuck, we sorry. We were we were in we were in this together, and um, just kind of the disparity between, you know, what some of us are still hoping to achieve and what people have kind of left behind as their university experience. I guess. I mean, and I mean, one more one more question. I mean, one more question on this very quickly is if. If we look at all of the protest movements this year, Black Lives Matter and SARS, they're they're vulnerable to the same sort of you know fizzling out that you're describing now. People getting co-opted. What do you think is like a lesson that can be learned from these generational cycles of protest that Sean is referring to? And you have one forward? minute, and sadly, you have one minute. <laughs> Shit, to be able to do that in a minute, gosh. Write an article for us then. <laughs> I'm happy to do that, but I do think that political education um, and and you know how to constantly being and having to organize um, outside of the spaces that we are that we started organizing in is incredibly important. And I don't just mean political education in terms of. Biko says this, Fanon says this, those are incredibly important. But in terms of political education around, you know, what does it mean to have strategy or tactics in terms of 
building movement and to you know to push for particular demands um, that we're wanting. I think that's really critical in sustaining um, and building movement. And sometimes um, I think also those demands are different for um, depending on who you are within the movement, which I think is interesting to see within the US and in other and in even in Nigeria and and Namibia. I think when people are talking about um, it's interesting around gender-based violence. It's very interesting that um, a push for prison time and an increase in, you know, punitive um, forms of justice is quite scary um, in terms of what alternatives would look like. I hope I covered that in this. Excellent job. Um, yeah, Alex, thank you so much for, for coming Thanks on. Thanks so much, everyone. Also, just by the way, I didn't realize John Vulligate as a song had ended. <laughs> I thought that was taking us through December. It was It was taking us through the warm-up. It was the pre's. Oh, okay. People had to... We need to warm down because the second wave is, is really happen. real. Yeah, yeah. Give us your warm down track recommendations in the comments so that people can start to get responsible. I'll plug it. It's actually a hip hop collective um, in based in Cape Town, Sounds of the South. They've got a song for called For Power. I'll put it in the chat. Oh, excellent. Okay. Great. Thank you very much, Alex, for coming on. And we're looking forward to some writing from you in the new year. Yes, definitely. It is a command. <laughs> it is a command, as the EFF would say. Um, so our next guest who's going to come on is uh, Anakwa Dwamena. Anakwa is a contributing editor with Africa's country. Um, watch out in the new year. He's going to get involved more in our um, book, uh, how we approach books, because we, we kind of we want to move away from just reviewing books and do something a little bit more interesting. And we're hoping that Anakwa is going to be like helping us make, make that a reality. Um, I'm just going to jump in with him because I don't want to waste time and just quickly ask him, what do you think, Anaka, were the three most culturally significant events of 2020? If oh, you could think. What, what things like jumped out of you in, in 2020 in terms of the production of culture? It could be films, it could be books, it could be television shows. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it could be music. Um. I mean, I think uh, some of these have been touched on already, but I'm thinking of NSARS um, and I'm thinking of uh, how Davido's song Femme uh, became really popular and, and Femme means shut up uh, in, in Yoruba. And, and the song, it's in and of itself, it's not really a protest song, but um, during one of the, uh, the protests, uh, the DJ switch um, kept on playing the song when the, I believe the governor of Lagos was trying to talk to the protesters and kept on interrupting him. So it became this um, symbol of resistance. And I think what, why that was interesting was because for a very long time, there's been this sort of, um, I think there's been a lack of a, a fella type person uh, in, in the, at the intersection of resistance and music in Nigeria. And I think probably Fowls is the closest we come yeah. to that recently, um, but, this seemed like a moment where people were forcing. I mean, I, th I think the NSARS movement deliberately went at celebrities and tagged people and were tweeting at people to bring them into um, the movement. So I think that was certainly one of the 
culture making uh, moments. Um, on the flip side, I, I think that uh, to look at in Ghana, um, Black is King, um, which was, uh, you know, and I only mention Black is King because uh, Shatawale had the song uh, King already with Beyonce. Um, and, you know, I think that there's been this sort of big debate whether Sarkodie is the, you know, the most global musician or, you know, someone else. And I think with Black is King, Shatawale had this sort of boost uh, around the world. But of course, you know, we have, we have all of the discourses around Black is King and whether or not just showing images of Africa or select images of Africa um, are, you know, enough. And, you know, you can come to uh, uh, the Africa of the Country website and you encounter many, many posts to um, engage with that. So I think those are probably the two things that I can say uh, off the top of my head. Well, you've you got the one that? minute question. you got the one minute question. Nice, nice, nicely done. I mean, I'm interested to hear from you. I mean, do you think that Heading into the new year, a lot of these artists, which have now been roped in to politics, are going to sustain that interest. Do you think this has sparked a moment for them to continue exploring the side of their cultural craft? Or do you think it was fleeting and people did it because it was all the rage and all the hype? Or is this a, a new moment for, for a cultural realignment? Yeah, I think um, luckily or or not, uh, depends on how you look at it. I think that protest and is is going to be inter intertwined with media, with the internet, etc. And so, you know, if these folks want to exist uh, on platforms and engage in this way, I think that they're going to have to be. And this is why I say whatever, good or bad, because it could be uh, factuous and not actually real engagement. But I think you know the days in which you get away without sort of chiming in on something are, are going to are not are, are going to be over and um, again people are not doing it because they want to but because they're being dragged I mean I think that um, you look at how Beyonce for one who is not Nigerian but um, was really really harangued into making this a kind of statement it was actually quite amazing her mom came to her defense on Instagram um, even so I think th this 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 is something that we're going to keep seeing more and more of I think. That is, uh, that was, we actually, we stayed within the time limit because I noticed that we're going to lose people if we don't keep moving. But we're always happy to have a Nako on. If you missed the program where he, he came on with Ben Talton um, yeah. to talk about the legacy of Nkrumah, it's a great program. And Nako's written about that also. I just want to say, yeah. I just want to say, yesterday we had our Africa's a Country Christmas party and a Nako oh, yeah. made it to the death round against <laughs> So I just want to recognize his quizzing skills. The, the runner-up. He was the runner-up. Anako was the runner-up. Beaten in the final. And, and, well, I was going to say unfortunately because he's here and Poima's not here, but he was beaten in the final, yeah, by the by the chief. Can, so, can I can I plug a, a book too? Go ahead. Plug your book. Yes. Um, so um, Martial Gallas, um, Black Cathedral, um, and he's a Black Cuban author. Um, and this is a book that is ostensibly about the building of a cathedral in a neighborhood in Cienfuegos, but it ends up being about much more than that. And there's a lot of commentary about race. Um, Obama even gets a mention. And it's one of the funniest books I've ever, ever read. So um, we'll put it, we'll, we'll put it in the thread too. Thank you so Excellent. much. We need to read that. Read Obama's book, read this book. Read this book, yes. Read this book. <laughs> Take it easy, brother. I think we next have, uh, Will, do you want to get the next guest?
yeah, we've we've got we've got Ben Talton who is 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 joining us now. Ben was on our episode on Ghana with 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 Anakwa and and he he writes on on Ghana on African Americans in the United States of America and he we're grateful to have him on because Ben, you were mentioning you're in a a full day writers retreat. So I'm gonna I'm gonna retreat right now, toggling back and forth. He's also nice. wearing a very he's wearing a Howard Bison's always always. Also, the, one time by the way, people forget Howard won a soccer championship. The end of the eighties, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 were the football well football with the U champions of 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 the of the of college football in the US. I also want to plug I always plug our schools I have a Tuskegee University <laughs> oh there you go Tuskegee <laughs> Tuskegee and how I just love our schools and the and the our HBCUs in the US are we plugging books I heard you I heard you plugging books if we're in the if we're in the plugging book business plug, plug I mean, a book if you want to start by plugging a book I'm happy that you plug a book a young man named Benjamin Talton also wrote a book here. Oh, yeah. no shame, just shame. He's taking a leave out of what I did the other, what I did last week. No shame here. <laughs> no shame from you. That's about. Yeah. That's that was a, a great third world um, uh, African American. He was a, a, house, a representative, right, from Texas. Congress from Texas, right. Um, how would you? I mean, is it? I don't want to put you on the spot because you, 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 you're wearing the Howard stuff. You got the Tuskegee under it. Like this is this last year. Well, I would say 2019 was really the year, and then I think we saw the. If there was no COVID, I think it would be interesting to see this year mm -hmm. how that played out again. But this, this was like the. This I would say there was some kind of rap rapprochement, um, and and it looked like there would be like a different way in which that relationship between African Americans and Africans were playing out. Um, beyond, like you know, how would you characterize that relationship? In the end, I think it became like Black is King, um, uh, on the back of Wakanda of, of, of Black Panther. Yeah. But where do you see something like progressive coming out in that relationship? That's a tough one. I think if without without COVID, right? <laughs> it's kind of right. hard to imagine this world without COVID because COVID is consuming all aspects of, of our lives. But I always talk about with, with friends and in chats, what's interesting is just seeing Nigeria becoming the historically urban black. There was this African reference to a slight extent, maybe a Jamaican reference for global blackness in urban spaces. And it's interesting to see Nigerians pop up and Nigerian pop music and Nigerian, and Nigerian novels for the last, what, 20 years? Um, and even in universities, when you look at uh, at HBCUs like Howard and Lean and Morehouse and Spelman, we see a lot of Nigerian American students. So just seeing Nigerians in Nigeria, globally, but also in the United States, shaping pop culture, shaping uh, intellectual spaces, uh, shaping the engagement between the United States and Africa, the UK and Africa, and then global Black policy. I think that's interesting, and I and I I, I know that's a trend that's going to to continue. Not to say that it's just uh, Africans abroad and second, third generation uh, descendants abroad are really shaping this, this relationship in ways that African-Americans probably could not, but also with African-Americans. So I think that's gonna be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw The Guardian ran a piece like that, actually, like a video, they had like a little video that included commentary by a couple of people from Africa's country, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Pini Muhammad was in it. Uh, uh, Wilfred Okiche, but it was basically mm -hmm. kind of piggybacking what you're saying. It was this whole idea that 
um, Nigerians who are sort of almost now beginning to define global blackness. Right, right. Like, and we still also see so many of the artists were either raised in or lived in yeah. the UK or the United States. So yeah, that's, that's so I think grew up, grew up somewhere in Alabama or in, in mm. somewhere in the South or Atlanta. He mm. grew up down there for like a little bit. And then that helped, you know, kind of he's this kind of more creative relationship between sort of the US and, and, and West, well, specifically Nigeria, but if you want to say yeah. Africa. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting because when you know when you asked the question, you said without COVID, but when you, when I think about it now, COVID has actually played a big role in sort of connecting these different parts of the world mm -hmm. because when everyone's kind of forced to migrate online and you're no longer sort of stuck in the boundaries of the time and place that you're in at a particular moment and you're able to, you're forced yeah. really to, to spend the majority of your time online, people are, are connecting with each other digitally in ways that oh, haven't prior. And we don't know if this is something that's sustainable. We don't know if it's something that is amenable to a progressive right. politics. But it's certainly helped people make those connections that they otherwise wouldn't have. I mean, N plus, as you guys are talking about and mm -hmm. we've been talking about, is a sort of key example right. of how people had no choice but to get plugged in into what was happening in Nigeria because that was what was consuming all of our attention on these digital platforms. It's interesting, isn't it? In some ways, COVID has forced us to stop to pay attention, but with Zoom in particular, um, there's this, this mode of connectivity. So for example, I'm at this retreat, but I'm not at the retreat all day today. <laughs> Eastside, the Center for Study of African and African Diasporic Studies at NYU, which I'm a part of, we've been having these webinars. And we just, within three weeks, we throw together a COVID in Ghana uh, right. check-in yeah. or yeah. COVID on, in Africa and the African diaspora. So it be someone at Legon in Accra someone in Grenada, someone here in the States, and someone in South Africa having a conversation about COVID. So there's certainly this upside, if you could speak of an upside, of engaging in particular, but also this across uh, global blackness, if you will. So forcing folks to, even my students at Temple, my Nigerian, Nigerian-American students who are super plugged into the anti, the, uh, the NSARS campaign. And I think, being forced to stop and pay attention. And then the benefits of social media, they're totally plugged in. They're in these, these conversations and these chats, and also helping to organize protests here in solidarity with the NSARS movement in ways that I don't think uh, they would have outside, outside of COVID. Again, taking their cues from the continent, which is very important, right? So they're not organizing and saying it should be, should be done. It's activists in Nigeria that they're in conversation with okay, this is how you can support us. So it's been, in that regard, it's been, it's been fantastic. Ben, thank you so much yeah, for joining us. I, yeah, I want you to go back to the retreat. Um, and I want to recommend actually that series you mentioned from NYU. Um, I think you can find it via the website of the, yeah. of the, is it called the Africa House, I think it's called. So we have Africa, so CESA, the Center for the Study of Africa and Africa Studies. Yeah, it's a great series. A lot of it. I think Michael um, Michael Gomez moderates some moderates some of it, right? He did. Mike. Yeah, yeah. So, I've I mean, seen we've also invited really other people good. to moderate. Really really oh, nice. I'm plugging one last book. This is my novel. Yeah. I was reading this. This is what got me through the early part of COVID. Ah, oh, there you go. Okay, nice. Fantastic. About that. Yes, we wrote about that. One of our our last guests today. He actually interviewed 
um, Azim and Gisle about that book. Um, it's fantastic. We'll away with that last guest is here. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Ben. And we're happy to have you, brother. Thank you. We'll talk again. Easy, bro. Enjoy the break. Our next guests, uh, I mean, just the right people to join us now, uh, are Associate Professor of English at Wesleyan University, Lily Saint, as well as Associate Professor of English at University of Connecticut, Bhakti Sringapur. And I mean, Ben just wrapped up his little segment talking about Maza Mengiste's book. And, you know, Bhakti, Lily, we always go to you to ask if it's a book worth reading. So <laughs> should, we, should we go get a copy? Um, you guys, as, the, as our resident sort of English professors, what do you, what do you make of that book? I haven't read it yet. Shame on me, but um, it is part of this big historical novel trend that I've been seeing coming from the continent. Um, so I have it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to reading it. But I, I think this like this question of why history has become like the thing that novelists are writing about, something I'm trying to figure out. And they're all huge books, which is yeah. also something, you know, like these kind of epic trails of people, of a people over a long period of time. There's less of a focus on the individual. I have lots of thoughts about, you know, like the, this return, this look back, this turn to looking back for the why present. Do think, why do you think that's, why do you think that's happening? You know, why is it happening right now? Um, you know, I think in part it's a revision of the archive, of the historical archive. You know, like we've got to, there isn't a lot. Um, in there, I mean, there's certainly a lot to be found in the colonial archive, for sure, but there isn't a lot, there's a lot missing. And so there's an attempt, an imaginative attempt to fill in those gaps, right? To to think through, think about what that those pasts could have been, could have looked like, and... Um, so it has to be done imaginatively. I mean, I think it's not a 2020 book, but the 2019 book that was really big for me was um, the Sadia Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, mm-hmm. um, which is exactly this kind of speculative historical work where she uses things such as, as tiny as like a ti- a person in a photograph that you can hardly see in the photograph to then create massive life that she imagines for this person based on all this archival work she did. So I think these kind of this overlap between um, speculative nonfiction and historical fiction is, is about it's about creating, filling in the gaps in the historical and, and I would say back to, we've seen this in film too, right? Like in like how film is now. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you I think, about uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote about Our Lady of the Nile, uh, which is which was a novel by Scholastic Mukasonga of Rwanda, and it talks about the events of 1959, was it? No, 1970, sometime in the 1970s at a girls' boarding school. And then it was made into a film by, uh, oh, this is Dan's article? Okay. Um, yeah. And then the then the Rwandan story was made into a film by this French Afghan filmmaker, and I think uh, full disclosure, I I was uh, Lily, Sean, and I, and a few other elite group oh, yeah. were part of a fabulous film club during COVID, and we ended up um, weekly watching some amazing films, right? And uh, a lot of good women filmmakers. I would like to plug Dalin Yarrow by Lula Ali Ishmael. Oh, yes, you guys yes, covered yes, it. Yes, yes. So good, so good. Very badly translated uh, into English uh, on Amazon. I think it, it, it's called like Djiboutian Youth. Uh, 
but it should really be called girlhood because it's about three girls coming of age in Djibouti. So yeah. Anyway, I think it's a good but year you, for women, African women. But but you wouldn't. Uh, there's a there's a movie called The Suitable Boy, a series called The Suitable Boy that you have that you wouldn't plug. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, I have engaged uh, abnormally, abnormal amounts during this COVID times with Indian stuff. I'm even meant to write an article about gender and Indian streaming shows, which I don't know when I'm going to write it, how, how, because I have just low interest. But I think Suitable Boy had some kind of a pacing problem. Uh, it had some kind of like the Indian accents, that the way they spoke English felt odd. I don't know. There was something very stiff and and weird about it. I'm a fan of Mira Nair, but that didn't quite work, I would say. Well, yeah, her son got uh, got elected in New York, which is, um, just, I just wanted to drop right. that. That's one of the great things of this year. Uh, Zora Mamdani got elected in New York, and I think one other person, Omar uh, Fateh, who's from, uh, who's a Somali immigrant, he got elected in, in, uh, in Minneapolis also um, uh, to a, to a, a state legislator. But before we let you go, we have to ask you, you guys are running a good series for us um, mm -hmm. that we, that started last year and we think it's going to pick up. We're hoping it's going to pick up this coming year. It's called Literature is a Country. Um, you've had like a really good, and I'd recommend this really nice lecture slash seminar that you had with the African Literature Association uh, organized by Akin um, Adesokan, who's also a friend of Africa's country. Um, which I can recommend to people where you, where you go through all the arguments of that series. But who can we expect in that series coming up this year? Ah, well, who are we waiting on? Somebody about Swahili literature. Um, I'm not I sure. Forget, I mean, we've also been, talk, we've been talking to um, some people about including more data from, from the Francophone countries. Um, so in supplementing what we currently have and making it sort of more robust. I hate that word, everyone uses that word, but more robust data set um, for, you know, for what to, you know, and then yeah. we, have, we are waiting on some essays and I'm forgetting. We don't want to give it away, don't yeah. yeah we, I, I'm just I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, I have a book plug, I have a book plug before you make us go. This Jacob Lamini book, um, Safari Nation, uh, it's great. I mean, I love everything he does, um, but it's, it's, and it follows, some of the is that Mandela? Cool. Is that Mandela with it's Mandela? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and it's really no, no. I think you know, like a lot of people focus on on these safari on these parks as places that have been evacuated from locals, indigenous populations have been evacuated. But he takes this other focus where he um, wants to examine the presence of people in those spaces, the historical presence of Africans um, in um, safari parks, in the Kruger National Park in particular. And it's just like a really wonderful mm -hmm. approach to to the archive again. So I guess I'm in, I'm in history now. You can't do any of the presence. Excellent. And back to you, you want to plug a book before we let you go? Yeah, I'm, I don't, I want to uh, de-South Africanize this. So I'm going to plug the book I've been reading deeply. Where is this? A Death Retold in Truth and Rumor about, uh, about uh, a murder that rocked the, uh, the Moy dictatorship in Kenya. Uh, a British tourist called Julie Ward went missing. And uh, uh, Kenyan Grace Musila, Kenyan scholar who works at WITS actually, uh, has written a brilliant book. 
about how unofficial narratives are told, how the archive is erased and then brought back, and the way in which a dictatorship manipulates uh, the truth. And it's it's great. And it's not from 2020, but it's so good. I love how you said, I'm going to de-Africanize the thing. And then you, you said, oh, this book is written by somebody who's based in South Africa. <laughs> no, she's Kenyan. She has a job there. Come on now. Which is another topic for another time. We have to at some point talk about the African University, which I think everybody yes. talks about everybody going, like the next step is you go to Europe, you go to North America, but there's also another kind of thing in which you're traveling down, um, mostly to South Africa. I think earlier we were just having a chat before we came on. There's one other place in Africa, which I have a lot of respect for. Well, in Africa, <laughs> outside of Africa, I would say. There's a lot of places with respect. Oh, Tom There's a lot of good universities, and everybody's doing great, and I've experienced it. Um, but I would rank uh, Miser, the um, uh, Makarere Institute for Makarere. Social and Economic Research at Makarere, Makarere. Makarere, I'm giving Makarere. It's not a, not a fire there in one of the big buildings, and we're hoping that they're going to recover. But I was just, my point, which my English was, my English is bad. I just want to make that point here. Uh, I'm not an English professor. Is uh, <laughs> the, the place that I rank like high? Lily's shaking her head right now. Is, is I don't teach English, but it's fine. It's fine. It's Go ahead. MISR. Bad name for what we do. ESL. We all teach yeah. ESL. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Thank you okay, so, so much. We're gonna, Thank we're gonna, you. We're going to have the two of you, and I think we're going to revive this film club outside of this. Uh, but uh, we, um, we, yeah, we, we got to let you go. Okay, yeah. you're welcome. You're invited. You know, one of the other things we struggle with well, in our jobs is the idea of core literature versus like the other stuff. You know, electives. We are never core. I'm never. I never. You know, I would never. Something I like is never a core class. You know, mm -hmm. post-colonial studies is uh, is a is a is an elective. Anglophone is an elective. African is an elective. Whatever. So, so, you know, it's just you know, kind it's of, just kind um, of um, you know, you have to do you know, away, with, to these do away with these You hire scores. people, you hire, you hire a whole set, a of, whole people set of people who do all kinds of things, and they should really be teaching really what they want, and the students should design their course of course of study, you know. Maybe a little too much. Too much dreaming. Too much dreaming. I don't think you have left any dreams for me, actually. Why do you have that language? So I don't know if you're like, hey, what the hell was that? Well, that was a clip from when uh, when Bhakti and Lily and um, Ukoma Wangugi came on uh, to talk about African literature. And that included when I sort of like asked them this question about uh, whether Afrikaans was a decolonizing project. Apparently, I'm still getting stick for that, for for raising, uh, <laughs> raising, that, for raising that question. But I did. I did. In any case, we. I think we're we're we're, so, we're still keeping up with time here, right? Well, we're sort of a little yeah, over. We'll hey, find you around with like another 10, 15 no. minutes. So December. There's no rush. Uh, Except if you're on the northern hemisphere, where there's no such thing as December, they make you go to school until Christmas Eve. Hey, your fault for leaving, man. Come back. <laughs> Well, we don't have grief here today. Remember when Grief said that I needed to, uh, the North need to shut up? I, if we can find that clip, we should play that clip before we leave here today, and that I should be decolonized. I think we should play that clip here at some point. Why don't you introduce our, our next guest? Yeah, our next guest uh, is Sohela Surajpal, uh, who just completed her master's 
in law at the University of Pretoria. She's on her way to Clark at the Constitutional Court. We're very excited to have her back on. And Zahel, I mean, last time you were on the show, you before she answers that, is she going to go Clark for the great Chief Justice of Anti-Vaxxer? Uh, <laughs> what else did he He said some dumb stuff. Somebody told me he said some bad stuff about women. He said some stuff about vaccines. He also said something else recently. There was another one he did. What was the other one? Hey, it's hard to keep up, but yeah. uh, it was it was about Israel and Palestine. Israel and Palestine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We support. We support. Uh, we protest against the occupation. So you're not going to go Clark for 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 Chief Justice. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but but I, I have no comment on. On any of that, I'm sure it violates some contractual term somewhere. When you when you were last year, Sahela, you told us you're going to circulate a copy of your master's. So uh, just to yeah. contextualize, we were talking about prison abolitionism in an African context, and that was what your research was on. And I mean, mm. we've had this. I mean, similar question to the one we asked Paul. We've had this entire year go by. We've seen the beginnings of this international consciousness about the destructiveness of prisons. You published a fabulous article with us earlier in the year. And this conversation is once again in the spotlight after the United States executed Brandon Bernard. And I just after writing your master's, that extremely arduous process, as I imagine it was, and after the, the year we've had, where do you think that consciousness is in South Africa and the continent as a whole? Yeah, so I think we we definitely hit a peak at some point during the year, um, especially I think within an African and South African context where these were conversations that were already happening. There was a webinar every other week. There there were articles and people were really keen to to talk about like the history of policing as well as the role that they continue to play to to interrogate things like prisons um, and unfortunately I think uh, eagerness has died down somewhat I think uh, living under COVID and just like crushing austerity and all of the other scary things that are happening right now um, has made uh, ideas of, of abolition take a sort of a backseat, which is really, I think, one of the most dangerous, one of the most difficult things to overcome when we're talking about prison abolition. Because one of the things about prisons is that they are like so effectively out of sight and, and thus out of mind. And also that prisoners don't have a lot of social capital, especially, especially I think in South Africa, where so many people have personally been affected by crime, often somewhat violent crime. And so, yeah, the risk is always going to be there that the moment you have other things to think about or to worry about, it's very easy to say that, you know, we'll worry about prisoners at a later stage. So, yeah, I, I'm not happy with where the conversation is right now. And I think it definitely needs to be rebooted. And the really unfortunate thing is that uh, it probably will be when we inevitably have another incident of police or prison violence or brutality that, that makes us sit up in shock again. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just been thinking lately about the second wave, which is now gripping South Africa and about how there's this return of tough policing talk about how you know, South Africans are wayward. They 
lack the ability to comply with restrictions. There's, I'm seeing footage that's been coming out of, of people in establishments complying with those restrictions, but police officers barging in and shooting rubber bullets at people. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's been an interesting moment to think about how sometimes, you know, the language of, of compliance and respecting public health restrictions and edicts and so on can end up sort of feeding the state authoritarian project to sort of crack down on their citizens and sort of discipline citizens as mm-hmm. these um, unruly people who can't just, you know, respect the rules and, and so on. So, yeah. But I, I think that, yeah, that's, that's very true of sort of how we approach most things and what so many people criticize about a culture of prison and policing, which is that conversations that should be about like how do we best take care of people and give people what they need whether it's to be healthy and to avoid uh COVID-19 or whether it's just like everyday things like ensuring you have food and shelter and and a job um become instead about like how do we police people forcefully how do we get people to step in line and punish them if they don't um and so I think it's something that isn't specific to this time in history um but that it becomes so much more obvious at moments like these. Sean, you're on mute. When when this when the pandemic started out, I think, and it sort of at the in the, the the middle of the first wave, I think a lot of the debate was maybe we're learning something here about how we can we you know how things can be publicly run, how we can treat a certain number of things as public goods. Uh, you know, set of services and goods. Um, and then quickly, as you say, that that got overtaken, even in a place like South Africa, where initially it started out as the government was getting praise for it, for the way it was handling the lockout, all the announcements and the, you know, the programs that it was said it was going to do. And then it ended up mostly focusing on, essentially, on policing, on controlling people. Like, that became, like, the, the driving ethos. But I know we've got, like, a few more guests lined up. So I'm going to ask you the quick other question of your five minutes. Um, which is a sort of weird segue, but it's funny. I was with somebody, I was talking to somebody the other day and he was telling me he taught his child this, uh, how his kids, one of their favorite songs is Hurricane, the, 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 the song about Reuben Carter, the, 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 who was in jail in the U.S. I don't know if people know Reuben Carter. He was, a, uh, he was an activist, um, um, prison reform. He was also a boxer. He, he was a Denzel Washington movie. So that, that, that song is a great song about somebody coming out of jail. Um, what would you, uh, this is sort of a related off question. What music are you listening to right now? What would you recommend? What music could you recommend? <laughs> Don't say Taylor Swift. It doesn't have to be prison related. It doesn't have to be prison related. <laughs> this is really like the very worst question to ask me because <laughs> <laughs> as I tell everyone, I have the worst taste in music and I'll be the first to admit it like, like, yeah, no, the most exciting musical thing that's happened to me this year has been like Taylor Swift released two <laughs> albums and they are both very sad and that's wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sorry, this is disappointing. Nothing interesting or or particularly meaningful, just sad girl things. <laughs> well, it's all, it's all sad. We're all sad, sad boys and girls this year, so Taylor Swift feels fair, awful. fair. <laughs> So it's always great to have you to have you back. You but again, you know, we, this is also a plug for people to go back and look at all the old programs that we've had. Um, so, Soela, thank you. 
Um, hopefully, we'll see you again soon. And congratulations on, on graduating. Excellent work. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Great to be here again. Bye. Great. Bye, so we're going we're gonna to switch gears a little bit. I know we talked about people behind bars, incarcerated, and how we, we formed that. We're going to talk about, we're talking about Jabulo Ngidi. And he is, we're going to talk about sports with him. Oh, he's, so last time we had him on, we, we, had, we had problems in like with the connection and eventually, uh, well, we're going to have him, um, Mazer, who's from Algeria, um, and we were going to get, um, she's out in California. Um, oh my God, this is terrible that I'm now uh, blanking on her name. And in the end, we had a lot of connection problems with Jabulo, but he's here today. So he, as our resident, he's also the news editor of the New Frame, which I don't know if he was around here when at the beginning of the program, Paul Clark shouted out the New Frame. It was like, it was the most exciting thing. I think you guys should take that clip, take the quote, market it. I, will, I, I, I agree, New Frame has done some wonderful yeah. writing this year, really wonderful. And I, I actually personally, I read all the sports stuff. I read all the sports stuff on New Frame, all the great interviews. Um, that I think you, some other people are doing, and I'm really, the, the stuff about rugby, about cricket, but particularly about my favorite sport, football. So on that note, if, if the, what is the most significant, what would you rate as like three, the three most significant sporting um, events or, or, or if you want like, you know, just things of the last year, and I have this one that I'm thinking about, but I want to see if you're thinking about the same thing. Uh, this is a trick. This is a bit of a trick question. So let's see if he picks this one. So you go ahead, Kabula. Uh, and I was listening in when they were decolonizing South Africa, and I'm coming here with my South Africa bias. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm apologizing in advance. I think for, for me, it's Pito Musimane's move to coach Alali. Uh, this, was my, this is my number one. I was like, I waited for the trick, but for me on the continent, that's a big thing. But go ahead, explain it to the people. Yeah, Alali are the most successful club in the world. I mean, there's no football team that has won more trophies than them. They're an institution that is huge, not just in the continent, but also in the Middle East. And the following that they have is quite huge. And for them to have the first player coach to be Pinto, who's had a rocky uh, career in terms of his coaching. He's had some ups and downs, but he's really set the bar high in terms of ensuring that African coaches are respected because that's been the biggest challenge in African football where it's easier to just hire a European who have played some couple of good games in the European League and they're given the biggest assignments in the continent, whereas an African who's really done well and worked hard to be at that same level is hardly afforded such an opportunity. So when that happened... And even to, in such a short space of time, to give them the Champions League that they had been searching for for, for a long time. And sorry, Sean, the last time they won it was against Pirates in 2013. And for them to end that... Well, that, that you need to put it on the screen so I can correct. The first South African team to win a Champions League in Africa <laughs> in Pirates. Continue with your slander. Continue with your slander. So I think that was massive, and and I think it it in a way it it would be nice to see more African coaches being recognised across the continent because it, it we're very insular. I mean, the most uh, the, when we look at foreign coaches, we look at either Europe or South America. It's rare to find good African coaches going into some of the best leagues. I mean, it was nice 
uh, when Whitson Nurenda, for instance, came to coach in the PSL because there's someone who's respected. Luandamina has just moved uh, to Tanzania and is a very good coach in the continent. So I think Pito's success is going to open doors for many black coaches in the continent. Next move is Pito in Europe. Pito in Europe at a top European club. But we want him. This is the thing, though. Something I'm thinking about and I want to ask this is that maybe he should stay here because we're talking about how this is opening doors for coaches. What does this mean for continental football? Because the last time you were on, we touched on this very briefly. Do you feel like the continent is getting more and more closer to a point where it starts to think, you know what? We can have our own sustainable footballing culture where we don't look to Europe and North America as models for how we should be conducting our affairs. And what we really need is more continental solidarity where we need, because people don't take the, I mean, like South Africans really, I don't think take the CAF, uh, the, the CAF Champions League as seriously as they should. And my hope from this is that if they see an, an South African coach winning that uh, for, for an Egyptian team, then this is something that we'll start to care about. And, and the Champions League here can be as big as the UEFA Champions League is in Europe. Do you think we're starting to to approach that point? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, since Pizzo has uh, gone to Egypt, there have been a number of South Africans who have been asking for streams in terms of watching the Egyptian League. And the Champions League has been tricky to watch uh, this year because of that whole corruption and the Lagarde deal uh, with... Uh, would care. So, I mean, even that, a lot of people have sort of had to stream that. But it was, it's nice to see that, I mean, South African putting on an interest in somewhere else, not just South Africa, to, to be following that and then wanting to to, to follow what, what's happening in the Egyptian League. And that can only sort of uh, help them because they're going to see more than just Pizza. They're going to see what is it that Egypt is doing well, because there's so many things that we could learn from them and take back to our league. And if you can have that where there's a culture of watching not just the Champions League, but watching other African domestic leagues, we can grow in the continent because we would learn what is it that they are doing well and what is it that we can expect when we play those other in club or even in international uh, competitions. Last question to you is, um, this, this, you know, you're actually giving, you, you're giving sort of a glimpse of the future of how, if you're a fan of African football, like how you can watch it. Because, for example, I always get mad when, it's a really big South African game. And I'm just like, and especially during the hard core part of the pandemic, I was like, why don't the South African, the PSL, SAFA, just stream this stuff? Like the Koreans were doing when nobody else had any football. The Koreans started showing their football. And I was like, nobody else had football. And I was like, South Africa was playing and they should have put, they should have just streamed the, the big games. Um, so do you think, because DSTV did a lot for how people watch football in Africa, whether it's the, the uh, you know, the English Premier League, European football, and they have revived or they've they put on like, you can watch Zambian leagues, you can watch Nigerian football, I think on DSTV these days. Um, do you think we should we should wait for DSTV or, or do you think it's going to be streaming, it's going to be that thing that's going to open it up? I think it will open it up and it's sad to see that we don't have quite a strong online presence in terms of how we package our game. I think we're lo lo doing a lot of things that are sort of outdated. I mean, TV isn't the be-all and end-all uh, in this day and age and where people are, are mobile and, and moving across different places and different countries. And I think there needs to be a, a good investment in terms of making sure that the project is digital. And one of the things I liked 
last year was in the AFCON in, in, in Egypt was how good Kev's uh, digital uh, marketing was in terms of putting stuff on Twitter and being interactive. I mean, it's something that they've been lagging behind for some time. And I think there needs to be a good investment on streaming. And that could be maybe even a market in terms of signing broadcast deals to, to sign one purely for, for streaming. Uh, is that a is that a West Indies shirt you're wearing? Yeah, uh, these are these are my people. <laughs> okay, because one more question for Jabulo. I mean, do you want to plug any book, any show, any podcast that you think is is interesting on, in terms of you know sports commentary? Before you, answer, before you answer, I hope you're not going to say what's that one called? <laughs> Chasing the sun. Do, are you going to plug Chasing the sun? <laughs> no. Anyway, continue. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading the currently I think it's two books it's the one was last year's one uh, The Water Denter by Tanayasi and because I struggled to read for the better part of this year and the second one I'm reading is uh, some bloke called Asen Venner uh, his autobiography and I think it's I've, I've read extracts on internet he's he's sort of resisted the urge to take jabs because that's the guy he's been. I mean, he's always been a gentleman who's been there for the good of the game. And I think with the shit show currently happening at Arsenal, it's good to sort of take a memory The way you set this up, are you an Arsenal fan? Sadly. <laughs> hey! That's funny. I'm, uh, I'm your rival in North London, but I'll, I'll end it there just so that this stays civil. I've noticed he doesn't comment on my Facebook page uh, posts where I'm making fun of Arsenal every day. So I'm yeah, I, 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 he's not taking the bait. He's not taking the bait. Um, anyway, um, thanks, Nabula. Next time we're going to have you on for like a full program because we plan to, in the new year, we plan to do once a month. We want to do a, a big kind of like sports and politics program. And we definitely want to bring you back uh, back for that. So good luck here. And, I, and I am going to ask you about Chasing the Sun and the yeah. whole that I watched the whole thing and half the time my mouth was hanging out. I was like, what? Is this that same team that did this, this, and this, and this? Um, yeah, it was it was quite quite a scene to watch that whole that, that whole program. In any case, we're gonna get you go, let you go because we're running, we sort of we, we're way past our time, it seems. We have two more guests to go. Great stuff in Jabulo. Take it easy, brother. Take it easy. Well, next, yeah. next we've got Dylan Valley, who is a contributing editor to Africa's a Country. He's a filmmaker based here in South Africa. And Dylan, it's great to have you on. Um, and you're looking really cool, my dude. I'm very impressive. Very impressive for that tree behind him. <laughs> Nice, nice little Christmas tree behind you. Uh, it's Christmas. Kid is Amber, more importantly. <laughs> thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank, thanks, guys. It's great to see you guys. And, uh, yeah, it's been a great show. I've been listening in as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a big year for, well, not really a big year, but a, a difficult year for film. And, yeah, I'm interested to hear from you. What do you think has been the most significant film and cinematic developments of this year. Obviously, a big one is having to transform how films are distributed because for a long time, people couldn't go to the cinema anymore. And what do you think that has meant for, for the industry and the culture? And also, uh, if you can add to that, like 
what, what was some of the like the good stuff that you saw? Yeah, that helped. That that made the difference. That made a difference this year. Yeah, so um, it's been a crazy year, you know, like with and for the film industry, very disruptive. I mean, last time I was on the stream, uh, we spoke about Queen Sono, and right. uh, I just heard that their second season has basically been canned, even though they had started working oh. on it because because of partially because of COVID and all the knock-on effects, uh, you know, due to COVID. So. So yeah, so like this, the industry is really in turmoil, and I think that a lot of uh, a lot of like the old models are not going to fly anymore. Um, and apparently, all of the Warner Brothers movies for next year are going to be going straight to HBO Max. So so yeah, everything is still kind of up in the air and in flux. So we'll see how it goes. Um, in terms of the good stuff, I saw. I mean, you know, like we spoke last time, I was lucky enough this year to go to be able to attend Sundance uh, Film Festival this year with a VR film that I made. Um, and uh, there was a film there, so I came prepared because you guys had sent out some questions, so I came prepared. Uh, so, the, so the best thing I saw um, there would have to be the film from Lesotho, which is, this is not a burial, it's a resurrection. Oh. Um, by, directed by Jeremiah, um, Forget his last night, Lemohang Jer Jeremiah. Damn, I forgot Jeremiah. Uh, yes, that's right. So, great film and also just amazingly shot, beautifully told. And he won a special award at Sundance. Um, and so, I is think that you know, mother, like, is that for Misa's mother who's in this film? Yeah, so Misa's mother was in the film. Oh, play the lead. Mm -hmm. So she she passed away sadly this year. Mm -hmm. um, so that film is definitely like a huge um, standout this year in terms of um, African cinema that I've seen with, uh, because he, he it's got such a clear directorial vision, very very unique um, kind of style, and uh, I really recommend people watch it. And but the best way to watch it would really be on the big screen uh, because of the way that it's filmed and you know the way that's shot, but Sadly, that's probably not going to happen for most people, you know, in the in the near future. But when you can, I really recommend you watch it, even if you're just streaming it at home. So, yeah, great movie. Um, and then, yeah, I think in terms of like the good stuff that I've seen, um, I've been watching a lot of series, to be honest, like everyone else. You're kind of scrolling through the internet, looking at series, um, and I'll, and the best series I saw this year, without a doubt, is. And, it, and in my opinion, it has to go down as one of the best series of all time. Is uh, I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Michaela yeah. Cole. Yeah. I got that on the list. Yeah, I got that on the list. Um, who is also a Ghanaian originally. She's originally, uh, family is from Ghana. So, uh, but uh, grew up in the UK. So, you're saying so, we'll, we'll take that W? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> You're saying we'll take that W. She's also going to yeah, we'll take that. We'll take that one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take She's that. the person behind chewing gum, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. She's the person behind chewing gum. But this, this show is really, it's really her coming into her own chewing gum. She, uh, well, there were a lot more cooks in the kitchen. And this one it felt like she had more creative control over the narrative that she wanted to tell. And it's just an amazing show, um, which is really in a, 
in essence, it's about consent and sexual violence, but it's actually about way more than that. Um, and it's it's amazing the kind of the emotional breadth that it has, the humor, um, you know, like intrigue, horror. Um, it's got all these. Uh, it, it kind of spans all of these human emotions so so well. Um, so I really recommend that. I recommend it. It's like truly, truly gripping show. Um, yeah, so so that's something you can go watch right now. I really recommend that. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's excellent. You're saying you're saying all the good stuff, but there obviously was something that you watched and you were like, what the hell is this? Like, what is the worst thing? What is the worst thing? Local, continental, anywhere that you just like started in was like, nah, out of praise, but not, I'm not going for this. Uh, why, why are you, why are you trying to make me win enemies at the end of the day? <laughs> I want this to go, I want that part to go viral. And then I want people to cancel you and you become like, you trending on Twitter and black Twitter is coming for you because you are, you are, you are, uh, what is the word always? You speaking against somebody's labor. Yeah. You know, so let's, let's hear that, Dylan. Come out, stand I for something. Be, I still want to be able to hang out with Trevor Noah one day. I'm holding on to that. <laughs> you know? oh. like, I, I can't go out there oh. missing, missing these people. You know, it could be one day it's like. You so know, you're saying it was Trevor Noah's show. It was Trevor Noah's show. The Afro did not convince <laughs> you. No, no, no. Like Trevor uh, Noah, by the way, has not been that bad. I will give him this. I, I think yeah, that he, yeah. I think this show, I will always tell people that I think his best show is when he went back to South Africa and he interviewed his grandmother when he was out of the studio and he was not imitating the, the John Stewart setup and he was just doing his own thing. And I was like, okay, this, I want to see more of this. But then, of course, he went, you know, he went back to the thing, sitting there in this like studio looking really small or whatever. And then he did now this. He's now at his house with the World Cups, the three replica World Cups behind him, um, which apparently he's doing. He's not doing that bad right now. He's actually doing. He's doing. He's doing well. But I still think what Trevor Noah has to do is leave the studio and make his own thing where he just interviews people. In any case, yeah, yeah. What? Still no, another question. Yeah. What is the worst thing you've seen this year? Worst thing I've seen this year. Hmm. It has to be Real Housewives of Johannesburg. Actually, <laughs> I saw some of that. I saw some of that. that. It's compulsive yeah. watching. It's I've seen a little bit of it. It's compulsive watching, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it wasn't compulsive enough to keep me going beyond the first ten minutes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, but, right. but I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Once you once you buy into it, once you drink right. too late, it's going to be hard to get out of it. But I know you guys don't have a lot of time, so I want to quickly go into my book recommendations and then. This yeah, guy can be prepared. I can be prepared. I like this. I'm very prepared. I can't very Speaking prepared. of so, time, very quickly. Speaking of time, the worst film I saw this year was Chris Nolan's Tenet. I didn't like it, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. I heard. Yeah, I heard. So I, oh, wait, I, I didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah, I like, what's I the like Denzel Washington's son, though. He's good. He's but good, I didn't yeah. see the film yet. But yeah, so this is my book recommendation. It's uh, it, oh, just it, won, it just won uh, the K. Selodeka Memorial Award. It's by Pumlani Pikoli, uh, a writer from South Africa. So sorry, sorry, I know we probably have a very big South Africa bias on the show already today, but uh, really, really great book. It's also 
it's a it's a nice holiday read. It's not very heavy, but it touches on a lot of themes about kind of being middle class uh, and black in post-apartheid South Africa, and the the generation uh, after or the generation of activists, uh, specifically like the anti-apartheid activists who are now occupying seats of power within the ANC, and then being the book is really about the the children of those of those mm. people. And then the second book recommendation is this book by Kelly Eve Koopman, also a South African writer from Cape Town, uh, Because I Couldn't Kill You, which is a, it's, it's less life worth reading, but it's really good. And uh, it starts off being a book about her trying to find a missing father. Uh, but it's really about a lot more than that. It's kind of just about a middle class, colored experience, uh, which will have, I think, a lot of parallels with the middle class, just broader black experience in South Africa, mm -hmm. and probably in other countries too. And kind of, and also being a generation after the generation of activists and um, how, you know, the, the kind of the, the baggage that comes with that. And sometimes um, in very unhealthy ways, how it can play out psychologically in very unhealthy way in families. Um, and so, uh, it's kind of about her dealing with with, with all those uh, themes. It's really good. Um, so these are the two books I read this year during lockdown that I really enjoyed. So I haven't read the Pumlani book yet. Yeah, I haven't read the Pumlani book, but I did read the Kali uh, Kopan book, and I I promised that we would interview her uh, at some point. Which we we you know there were a million things to do, so we fell down on it. If she happens to see this, this is also kind of an apology to her. But I will say there was one, there was, you're right, there's a whole bunch of parts in the book where you just sort of like where you, where she, you know, she's, she's writing about her dad, her estranged dad, but then she does a whole bunch of other things. And one of them, I think, is there's an interesting part where she's on a march with a group of uh, men who identify as Koi, um, or well, they say Khoi-san, although these are very different groups. And they're marching as part of sort of her kind of trying to make sense of her own identity. Um, I think somewhere in the Eastern Cape. And at some point, these men may say some of the most like sexist um, and racist things, and, and it really upsets her. And it also uh, makes her sort of like kind of struggle with some of her own kind of public, the public way that she's dealt with, you know, the, the sort of politics that she was, that she was kind of uh, struggling with, but also pro also promoting, like, you know, she, she I think she ran a show on YouTube called um, Colored Mentality. And you could see in that moment that she's sort of confronting like the, con the contradictions of that politics and what does it mean? Like if, if I'm with these people and this is what they stand for, like sort of like, so yeah, so it's a great book and I'm hoping that at some point, maybe I think in the end, we'll just bring her onto the program. Maybe Dylan, you and I can hang out with her and ask some questions yeah, and yeah, chat. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so, that'd be awesome. Hopefully we can get to read the book together. But in that, yeah, in any case, we wanted to thank you. You were a great guest as usual. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thanks, Enjoy Christmas. I like the tree with the lights on it. Uh, and then yeah. the red hat for Liverpool. And the red hat for Liverpool. <laughs> I'll, I'm going to let you believe that. As, as you <laughs> oh, wait. Do you support Arsenal too now? Uh, yeah, I'm more of a uh, Arsenal kind of guy. Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, goodbye with you. Uh, see you soon. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for coming, brother. We really, we're always pleased to see you there, and we got to catch up also soon properly. So we got one final guest. Um, I hope he, that he forgives us that we're going to be like very quick with him, but I think um, he's about to come on. Zach Rosen, I think he's right here. Oh, there he is. I know he listens to this show. I know he's listened to like all the, all the 20. number one fan. Came before this. And there's a reason why we end the show with him. People are like, why are you having this white guy at the end of the show? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Zach and I, and this is why I brought him on. He, he, him and I, we were like, we were the first to sort of say like, oh, we need a show. And then for a bunch of times, you can, I think we did like five, maybe six. I can't even remember. Yeah, I think five or six. Five or six shows where we did, uh, we just call it, a, we called it AIC Live. This one is now called AIC Talk. And we sat around in my living room. Um, like you can see, there's like, a, okay, now I'm out myself. Oh, that's my brother. I thought a Rosa came into one episode and then sort of like left. She came to ask something, and then behind us, uh, the the people might be one. Okay, that's a poster. It's an electrical prototype uh, with Nelson Mandela in it. Um, and and we had cell phones that are just like sitting up against some books on a chair. <laughs> Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. It's a lot more professional now, I can tell. Oh, yeah, we had like a cell phone, right? And we yeah. had, a, you had a camera also sometimes? Yeah. We had like a camera set up. To mount the cell phone somehow. So you, you that ultimate, I don't want to call you, you, let's call you like commentator. So you've been around, you've watched the show. You could, you could tell the people like, what do you make of where the show is going? What are you, are you learning anything from the show? This is the, this is, we, he, he's like, what? I came for this? <laughs> yeah, he's like the resident critic right now. So we want to know from our resident critic, somebody who, who was there when we started out, then we made a transition. He had to go do some other stuff. Um, like we've been vague here, right? So, um, and he's and now I've noticed he's growing a really nice beard. But with all yeah. that said, with all that said, as our sort of original, the, 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 you know, who was part of it at the beginning, you now we think of you as a, a TV commentator or TV critic. When you watch a show, like what do you what do you see? The first thing I want to say is that uh, the co-host situation has really improved. <laughs> <laughs> I learn, I learn, I learn from the best. I, learn from <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I have to pay my respects to those who paved the way. So, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Will does a much better job of of asking amazing critical questions. Um, and getting a word in over Sean, who likes to go on and on and on. So, um, it was, I, I struggle. If you if you watch that, those old ones, I don't encourage it. I thought you didn't want to speak. I didn't know that. I was like, <laughs> uh, anyway, we had we had our own dynamic. I like what's going on. I told you. I told you didn't want to say much. <laughs> okay. Okay. Everyone do your thing. Do your thing. That was that oh, do was your thing. Okay, we have to tell people what that was about. Do your thing. We had a, yeah, you got to tell go ahead, you. Go ahead. Do your thing. Go ahead. Yeah. You want to tell it? Shall I tell it? You can tell it. So we had an episode. We had an episode where oh, you you were still telling. First, finish your your like commentary on the show, and then I'll tell the do your thing story, which is sort of anticlimactic, but I'll tell it. Anyway. No, I mean I think I've I've tried to catch almost every episode of this show since it started, um, and it's been really fantastic to see how you've kept up with current events. You're able to, to source guests who have really interesting things to say. They've, they've published 
on the subject, they've taught on the subject, they're, they're based in the places where the issues are um, that you're talking about, and, and the, the preparation, the questions, are, you know, are a lot better than we just, when we were trying to figure it out on the spot. So I think it's, it's, fan, it's a fantastic evolution of the show. Um, the interaction with the comments is, is really fun to see. Antoinette is, is amazing, um, bringing uh, pieces from the background on Facebook and YouTube and, and interacting it into the, into the actual stream. So I think it's really fun to watch, and I, and I hope more and more people tune in. Nobody wants to see those old <laughs> Unless you just do your thing, then we do want to see it. <laughs> no, do your thing was just a, a story in which, like, I think Nipsey Hussle's mom was, like, it was, like, some, he was get, he was already he had passed away. Nipsey Hussle, by the way, a rapper from L.A., um, some, I mean, I, I like to listen to Nipsey. He's uh, family, part of his family is from Eritrea. His father, actually, his mother is from L.A., he's African-American. And um, he was, I think he had won like the BET award or something. And at this award, he, there's this like really uncomfortable um, scene between his parents who are both on the stage. And I think his mother's trying to like tell his dad what to do or something. You know, this is between them. Yeah. And at, at one point, I think his dad his dad said to his mom, do your thing. Is that, is that, or did she say that? No, the dad said it to the mom. The dad said it to the mom, and we were just kind of, I mean, it, you know, it's its kind of a sad moment that they, this family had to publicly live their grief. Um, you know, Nipsey Hussle was shot dead, as you remember. Um, but yeah, and then we just said, okay, we'll call the show Do Your Thing, um, which became sort of like Zach and I having this conversation that people watching it would probably not know what the hell are they. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing. We came up with titles in that show with, with that show, yeah. But yeah, what a great so as, as Sean was was talking and talking, and he, he wouldn't let me say anything. I would just have to say, "Okay, do your thing." Do your thing. Do your wow. thing. Okay, so at the end of this, I'm going to use that line from. I'm going to use that line from <laughs> At the end of this, you have to diss me, but that's okay. I'll take the diss. I'll take the diss. Okay, this was a very long um, two hours. I don't get recommendations. Come oh, on. Oh my God. Okay. Go, <laughs> go ahead. Just. Thanks. All right. You're my thing for a second. So um, I have this book that I got called Reincarnating Marachera Notes on a Speculative Archive um, by Tanache Mushkanau, uh, Zimbabwean writer who is a, is a good friend. And he has engaged with, with Dambuza Marachera's archive in different ways for a long time, you know, sometimes with his collaborator. Uh, and they put out this book uh, earlier this year, Ugly Duck Duckling Press. And I, I always admire the way that uh, Tinashe and Nonsi, they do really amazing things with publishing. The design is always incredible. They use different kinds of references, um, poems, quotations. Uh, images in really interesting ways. So when you take the book, you're not just getting, you know, the whatever text you're reading, you're getting a designed object, which is also beautiful. And and another example of something which came out maybe a year ago or so, yes, that's was a 77 book, which I encourage people to check out from Chimaranga, where they also did some archival research into the festival that happened in, in Lagos in 1977. Um, and I think it's probably come up on the show before, but this book is also beautiful in the way that they've they've curated an incredible amount of content. So 
total recommendations. Uh, I had an article on the site this year about Maza Mangiste's The Shadow King, so I, I absolutely recommend that. Uh, she should have won the Booker, but um, it's all good next time. Um, and I want to give a shout out to. Um, this guy has a lot of shout outs, but continue. More shout outs, right? Um, let, him, let him do his thing. Let him do his thing. <laughs> um, a friend, Buta G, has a great radio show uh, out of Cape Town. The Afro Map of Space streams live uh, right every Sunday on Ubuntu Beats Radio. It's been a staple for me uh, during lockdown period. Really chill. I encourage everybody to tune in. Buta G, and I'm going to say it in the in the in the language of the people. Ibra Zavara, oh, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> great DJ, great DJ. He's a local dude. He's from like he grew up. I, actually, I found out the other day he grew up something like ten to fifteen minutes away from where I grew up. Graham, yeah, Buta G. I was like, which for people who are interested in that world, there's a great book by William Finnegan. I think it's called A Year in the Life of Apartheid or a year, a year in the Land of Apartheid, where he teaches at the Wilmington from the New Yorker. And he ends up teaching at, at, at the local school, which is closer to Graham's, to, to Butaji's house, than it was to, to my house. I love his name, Butaji. I love the Buta. I, I refer to Bernie Sanders as Buta, Buta Bernie Sanders. <laughs> it's a term of endearment, yeah. Okay, we should, we should, we thank you, Zach, for being here, for coming on, yeah. for being there at the beginning and watching your children grow, although I should be your uncle, but seeing <laughs> um, and seeing, seeing your nephews, seeing your nephew and your, and your, yeah. your, your, your grown uncle, uh, who's, who's kind of like your nephew or whatever, um, watching us grow. I really appreciate you for being, for being there and still being around. Zach, by the way, is on our editorial board. So much shout out, much, much uh, I'll shout be, out. I'll be hearing from the background. <laughs> I'm playing records. Okay, so with that, uh, um, uh, Zach also always comes with a great vinyl recommendations, I may say. Dylan, by the way, who left? Kiwanuka. Michael Kiwanuka's Kiwanuka. Ah. Oh, Michael Kiwanuka. Okay. Is that a new album or is that the same? It's about a year old as well. Okay. Yeah. Really, really good. Amazing. Excellent, excellent. Okay, we're gonna have to say goodbye and end this because this has been a long two hours. I need water or something. Um, I don't know how Will stays dehydrated, hydrated during. Oh, he's playing. My glass is empty. Um, this was a great, uh, uh, almost like sigh of like two hours, two two or three minutes sigh of two hours. Thank you to the producer Antoinette Engel. Thank you to Will Showke, co-presenter. Thank you to all the guests that came on. I'm probably gonna forget a name, but it was like Paul Clark, Sahela, Suraj Pal, Alex Hodge, Lily Saint, Pakti Singapore, and Zubulangitangidi, Dylan Valley, Zach Rosen, Ben, Ben, uh, uh, um, Ben Talton, um, I think that's it. Zachary Rosen. Zachary, not Michael Kiwanuka. Not Michael Kiwanuka. We too. Sometime soon. I hope we didn't miss out on somebody. I don't think we did. I think we covered everybody. We did. With that, Merry Christmas, Diwali, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa, whatever you don't celebrate or celebrate. Happy New Year. Enjoy this end of the year break. I need to sleep more. 
Um, that's my New Year's resolution. I think I don't sleep enough. <laughs> I need to sleep more. Um, yeah, see you on the, hopefully we'll see everybody on the other side. Peace, peace, peace. and love. And once again, like, subscribe, follow us on our social yes. media. Yeah. Hit yes. the Patreon. Yeah. And yeah, join us on this journey and we'll see you at the next milestone. And we're not, and next and time we'll go through really shut up, you know, when it comes to <laughs> 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 the global north, the global north, shut up for Yeah, so folks like Sean, Sean, you should not lead the discussion. You've already done damage. Okay, today, right. twice now, first, Guga said that I'm not decolonized, <laughs> and he called me the global north. You are. I'm going to take these things in stride. Anyway, there, oh, look at look at well then. <laughs>